Approach each customer with the idea of helping him or her solve a problem or achieve a goal, not of selling a product or service. Brian Tracy Man's time here is finite, but the influence of a man is infinite. The question is what shall we do with the daylight that remains? Welcome back to the show. I appreciate you guys showing up and for your continued support here. We have yet again broken more records on our downloads and followers and reached a broader community. We have a lot of people showing up on Instagram, in the podcast, on YouTube, and uh, it's been very fun to interact with you guys on the various platforms, uh, receiving a few books from some friends out there and uh, getting a lot of good feedback. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Today, I want to share with you some advice on sales and, and influencing others. We've kind of been stuck on a topic of health and brain activity and those kinds of things, which I thoroughly enjoy. But I like to keep this podcast somewhat broad as far as the self-help, personal development and business world to try and expose you to as many good books as we can that might interest you. So we're going to take a few snippets from the book's Influencer, The Power to Change Anything, The Challenger Cell, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation, and Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. All very, very good books. These are my three favorite books on influencing others, sales or negotiation, which I know some of you are probably saying, I'm not a salesperson, but just because your specific career is not a sales position does not mean that you don't negotiate and sell yourself or a proposition every now and again, including your salary or if you're ever buying a home or a car, things like that. Uh, the sales process works both ways, whether you're selling or purchasing and uh, having these tricks up your sleeve will only benefit you. But before we leave the brain science in the past for any extended period of time, I want to mention to you a very interesting and helpful product that I've come across and joined forces with. So recently I've started using Magic Mind as part of my morning routine. And so I know a lot of you people are heavy coffee drinkers. You're consuming energy drinks to get yourself through the day. And, uh, the, the reasons are well known. Like caffeine does many things in the body and brain, including helping us feel more awake and alert and focused, which is why so many people are constantly consuming it. And uh, some people are pushing this to a very dangerous level. So the, the founder of Magic Mind, his name's James Beshara, and he, he actually has written a book as well called Beyond Coffee. So maybe we'll have to review that book here on the podcast, uh, Beyond Coffee. Anyway, James, he was running a business of 50 employees or so, and he was just very stressed out, consuming coffee all day. And, and eventually the stress combined with the caffeine and took him to the ER. And his doctor basically told him, you cannot consume this kind of coffee, more like a half cup a day rather than uh, the 
copious amounts he was consuming. And he was given the advice by his doctor to switch over to green tea because of some of the compounds in tea that are a little bit more healthy for you that can extend the life of the caffeine in your body and and extend the way it's absorbed a little bit, as well as something called L-theanine that reduces the release of cortisol, stress hormone in your body. And so he went on this journey and eventually came up with what is now Magic Mind. And uh, I've started using Magic Mind as well. And I love the results it gives me without feeling jittery. I I am one of those people that if I drink too much caffeine, I I feel really jittery. So a, a smaller dose of caffeine with this Magic Mind shot tends to give me exactly what I need so that I can focus better, have more alertness and attention without a crash in the afternoons. So I've kind of taken some of Andrew Huberman's advice and mixed it with this use of magic mind, and it seems to be working out very well for me. So so Huberman talks about the effects of caffeine, some of which I mentioned, but caffeine also has another interesting thing that I think is less well-known regular consumption of caffeine actually increases the number and function of dopamine receptors in the brain, which is an interesting thing. So caffeine also blocks adenosine receptors. Adenosine is the primary thing that causes your body to feel tired over time. Um, Dr. Matthew Walker explains it more as sleep pressure. Like for every minute you're awake, it, it builds up. And so by the time nightfall comes, you're starting to feel tired. Caffeine blocks those. So with using the magic mind, it slows the body's ability to absorb it. And therefore you get sort of a a longer lasting delayed release uh, of caffeine into your body, if you will. So if you, if you want to try Magic Mind out, see if it does for you what it's done for me and many, many others, uh, I have a promo code for you. You can go to magicmind.co forward slash the life you want, and you can use the promo code the life you want 20, 20. So the life you want 20, get yourself a, a discount over there and enjoy the benefits of a new and improved morning routine with Magic Mind. So let's let's jump into these sales tactics and strategies that these books have to offer. Let's start with Influencer. This particular chapter, which is nearly halfway into the book, is called Make Change Inevitable. Who shall set a limit to the influence of a human being? Ralph Waldo Emerson. He says, It takes a combination of strategies aimed at a handful of vital behaviors to solve profound and persistent problems. In fact, this is the core principle demonstrated by virtually all the change masters we studied. No single strategy explained their success. In fact, it became quite evident that individuals who succeed where others have routinely failed overdetermined success, that is, they bring more influence strategies into play than they might assume would be the minimum required for success. They leave nothing to chance. So next, they take us to this section called Master Six Sources of Influence. And throughout the book, they use various stories that are these large-scale uh, influential factors they're trying to achieve. So trying to eradicate the guinea worm, uh, teach an entire culture to read, trying to reduce or eradicate HIV in Thailand, some very challenging obstacles. So again, referencing these masters of influence, it says, these people, they either motivate or enable a vital behavior. Some do both. 
Motivation and ability comprise the first two domains of our model. We further divide these two domains into personal, social, and structural sources. These three sources of influence reflect separate and highly developed literatures, psychology, social psychology, and organization theory. By exploring all three, we ensure that we draw our strategies from the known repertoire of influence techniques. Let's quickly look at the range of influence sources effective influencers draw upon. Don't worry if they aren't crystal clear at this point. Over the next six chapters, we explain the various influence methods in detail. In fact, you're likely to see how many of them account for improvements you've made in your own life. But for now, you'll know how to consciously draw upon this robust set of sources anytime you need. At the personal level, influence masters work on connecting vital behaviors to intrinsic motives, as well as coaching the specifics of each behavior through deliberate practice. At the group level, savvy folks draw on the enormous power of social influence to both motivate and enable the target behaviors. At the structural level, top performers take advantage of methods that most people rarely use. They attach appropriate reward structures to motivate people to pick up the vital behaviors. And finally, they go to the pains to ensure that things, systems, processes, reporting structures, visual cues, work layouts, tools, supplies, machinery, and so forth support the vital behaviors. With this model at ready, influence geniuses know exactly which force to bring into play in order to overdetermine their chances of success. Pictorially, we can display these six sources of influence in the following model. And so they basically have this little model that has six circles. Uh, it, it would also fit in like a spreadsheet. So let's say we've got two columns. The left column has motivation with three circles under it. The right column has ability with three circles under it. And then on the left, there's personal, social, and structural for each row. So we have motivation and personal. That circle says, make the undesirable desirable. Below that, we have motivation and social, harness peer pressure. Below that one, we have motivation and structural, design rewards and demand accountability. So we go over to the next column, ability and personal, surpass your limits. Ability and social, find strength in numbers. Ability and structural, change the environment. So let's just read these six sources and then we'll move to the next book. So the story that they use in this particular instance is the guinea worm, trying to get rid of the guinea worm. And what the case here is these little villagers, basically, they all use the river as their water source. But the guinea worm is like a parasite in the water. And so as it starts to break free from the skin, it causes this horrible burning sensation. And the best thing to do is to soak it in water, which of course gives the guinea worm what it wants. It can then escape into the water or spread its babies and, uh, you know, infect the water. So then anyone else that comes into the water or drinks it then gets infected and the cycle continues. So really the solution they're looking for is to keep people that are infected away from the water. But these are very poor communities. And so you have to keep entire populations that are infected away from the relief source, their water source for drinking, for farming, for their, for their families. So you have to create all these uh, rules for, for a community, but 
it's not so easy because there's multiple tribes and there's sort of division and a lack of education, um, all kinds of problems. And so with that context, let's read through these six sources of uh, motivation. Source number one, personal motivation. When the guinea worm is exiting a victim's body, the pain is absolutely excruciating. Since victims can't merely yank the worm out of their arm or leg without the worm breaking and causing a horrific infection, they're forced to wind the parasite around a stick and slowly edge it out over a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. There's only one source of relief during this prolonged ordeal, and that's for victims to soak their painful sores in water. That means that individuals are personally motivated to do exactly the opposite of one of the vital behaviors, stay away from the water. If you don't deal with personal motivation, your influence plan will fail. Source number two, personal ability. Many of the villagers don't know how to properly filter water. They've been trying since General Gowan left, but the guinea worm disease is still rampant. When they take the steps to filter the water, They'll carelessly slop over a splash here and a drop there, affecting the water supply and continuing the infestation. Or they'll transfer filtered water into a pot that's still moist with unfiltered water. They'll need training to enhance their personal ability. Source number three, social motivation. Next, when you sit down with the locals to teach them how to eliminate the guinea worm, nobody's going to pay very much attention to your advice. You're an outsider and as such simply can't be trusted. You may be in good with the chief, but there are three tribes in the village, two of which resent the chief and will resist anything you offer because he's behind it. Unless circumstances change, you have a serious problem with social motivation. Source four, social ability. People in a community will have to assist each other if they hope to succeed. When it comes to an outbreak, nobody can make it on his or her own. If ever there was a circumstance where the expression, it takes a village, applies, this is it. For example, if someone comes down with the worm, others may have to fetch water for him or her. And when it comes to filtering, locals often have to buddy up in order to have enough pots to both fetch and filter water. If locals don't enlist the help of others you'll be missing the key factor of social ability. Source 5. Structural Motivation Given the villagers' current financial circumstances, individuals who become infected can't afford to stay away from work. This forces them to labor in and around the water supply, quite simply to put food on the table. They'll need to fetch water for both their crops and livestock. This means that the formal reward system is at odds with the three vital behaviors. Infected people earn money only if they work near the water source. If you don't compensate for the existing reward structure, victims will be compelled to serve their families at the expense of the entire village. Try to move forward without addressing structural motivation, and your influence won't reach far. Source 6. Structural Ability Lastly, locals don't have all the tools they need to filter the water or to care for the wounds in a way that keeps them away from the community water source. Worse still, the layout of the village makes access to the public water supply so easy and natural that it's erroneously tempting for victims to merely plunge their aching arm or leg into the water at the peril of everyone else. If you don't work on this last source of influence, structural ability, you're also likely to fail. 
All right, so with those six sources of influence, you can tackle any problem of any size. And uh, of course, you've got to become quite creative. They, they discuss the ways they've tackled each of these sources in eradicating the guinea worm. And just for your information, they were successful. And so despite the many challenges, they actually made it happen. And so uh, that's this is one of my favorite books on influence. It has some very interesting stories, excellent tactics, well-researched and written, uh, great book for sales and influence. Next, we're going to look at the challenger sale. So this kind of builds upon those six uh, factors of influence because this is like legitimately a sales book. If you're a salesperson and you're trying to up your game, this book gives clear instructions of who are the best salesmen and what makes them successful. And uh, I'll just give you a quick taste of this. Beginning in the very first, the foreword of the book, he says, The history of sales has been one of steady progress interrupted by a few real breakthroughs that have changed the whole direction of the profession. These breakthroughs marked by radical new thinking and dramatic improvements in sales results have been rare. I can only think of three of them in the last century. The first started about a hundred years ago when insurance companies found that they could double their sales by a simple change in selling strategy. Before this first breakthrough, insurance policies in common with many other products such as furniture, household goods, and capital equipment were sold by salespeople who signed up customers and then every week visited each of them to collect premiums or installment payments. After signing up a hundred or so people, the salesperson was too busy collecting weekly premiums to do any more selling of new business. Then some anonymous genius hit on an idea that grew into what we now call the hunter-farmer model. Suppose instead of one person both selling the policy and collecting the premiums, the two roles were split. There would be producer, who only sold, backed up by less experienced and therefore cheaper collectors, who came behind to look after existing customers and collect the weekly premiums. The idea was a spectacular success, and it changed the insurance industry overnight. The concept quickly spread to other industries, and for the first time, selling became a pure role without the burden of collection. The second breakthrough. We don't know exactly when the producer-collector idea was first introduced, but we can be very specific about the date of the second great breakthrough. It happened in July 1925 when E.K. Strong published The Psychology of Selling. This seminal work introduced the idea of sales techniques such as features and benefits, objection handling, closing, and perhaps most important, open and closed questioning. It showed that there were things people could learn that would help them sell more effectively, and it gave rise to the sales training industry. Looking back from the sophisticated perspective of today, many of the things Strong wrote about sound heavy-handed and simplistic. Nevertheless, he and those who followed him changed selling forever. Perhaps the most important aspect of his contribution was the idea that selling wasn't an innate ability. It was a set of identifiable skills that could be learned. The third breakthrough, the third great breakthrough came in the 1970s when researchers became interested in the idea that techniques and skills that worked in small cells might be very different from those that worked in larger and more complex ones. 
I had the good fortune to be an integral part of this revolution. In the 70s, I directed a huge research project, tracking 10,000 salespeople in 23 countries. We followed salespeople into more than 35,000 sales calls and analyzed what made some of them more successful than others in complex sales. From this 12-year project, we published a number of books, starting with Spin Selling. This marked the beginning of what we now call the consultative selling era. It was a breakthrough because it introduced much more sophisticated models of how to sell complex products and services, and like the earlier breakthroughs, brought about significant gains in sales productivity. The last 30 years have been marked by a lot of small improvements in selling, but we haven't seen many game-changing developments that could claim to be breakthroughs. True, there have been sales automation, sales process, and customer relationship management. Technology has played a bigger and bigger role in selling. There have also been huge changes to transactional selling as a result of the internet, but all these have been incremental changes, often with questionable productivity gains, and none of them, to my way of thinking, qualifies as a bona fide breakthrough in how to sell differently and more effectively. The fourth breakthrough, which brings me to the challenger sale and the work of CEB. It's too soon to know whether this is the breakthrough that we've been waiting for. Only time will tell. On the face of it, their research has all the initial signs that it may be game-changing. First, like the other examples, it flies in the face of conventional wisdom, but we need more than that. Many crazy ideas violate established thinking. What makes this different is that, like the other breakthroughs, once sales leaders understand it, they say, of course. It's counterintuitive, but it makes sense. I should have known. The logic you find in the challenger cell leads to the inescapable conclusion that this is a very different thinking and it works. I'm not going to spoil their story by telling either the details or the punchline. That's for you to read, but I will tell you why I think the research that they have done is the most important advance in selling for many years and many indeed justify the rare and coveted label of sales breakthrough. So skipping in a little bit, the basically did this massive research product trying to understand which salespeople performed the best, what were their skill sets, and um, then they divided those up. And, and so jumping in here, he says, putting salespeople into five buckets, the research claimed that salespeople fell into one of five distinct profiles, the hard worker, the challenger, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, the reactive problem solver. So let's learn a bit about these five types of reps. In the middle of a paragraph, he says, the 44 attributes we tested fell into five distinct groups, each containing a very different combination of rep characteristics. When a rep tends to be good at one attribute in that group, he or she is very likely to be good at all of the others in that group as well. So let's just break this down real quick. The hard worker, 20% of the sample size, they are always willing to go the extra mile, doesn't give up easily, self-motivated, interested in feedback and development. So that personality type goes very well with the last book we read, which was Grit. Next is the challenger. 27% of the sample. They always have a different view of the world, understands the customer's business, loves to debate, pushes the customer. Next is the relationship builder, 21% of the sample, builds strong advocates in customer organization, generous in giving time to help others, gets along with everyone. 
Next is The Lone Wolf, 18%. Follows own instincts, self-assured, difficult to control. (laughs) And lastly is The Reactive Problem Solver, 14% of the sample size. Reliably responds to internal and external stakeholders. Ensures that all problems are solved and detail-oriented. So as you may have guessed from the title of this book, the challenger actually performs the best. And they have a bar chart in here that kind of demonstrates where these people fall. It says that the challenger made up 39% of high performers, which is way higher than any of the other categories, but they also made up 23% of core performers. So then the lone wolf made up 25% of high performers. So they were actually second in high performers, but they were kind of average or even below average in percentage of core performers. The hard worker, 17% of high performers and 22% of core performers. The reactive problem solver. Second lowest in high performers at 12% and very lowest in percentage of core performers at 14%. And then the relationship builder, by far the lowest in high performers at 7% and the highest in core performers at 26%. So that one's a little confusing. But again, the challenger was by far the the highest in high performers at 39% and second place for core performers at 23%. So if you're interested in learning the attributes of a challenger, uh, this is an excellent book, The Challenger Cell. Uh, Basically, some of the ideas and concepts are that challenger cells work as a team. They challenge their clients, they teach them new information, and then provide them solutions to that information. In a world that's becoming more complex and tech-oriented and businesses span large-scale groups of people, um, it's important that the challenger's not alone in his sales position, but that the entire organization supports that sales person. And... Oftentimes, it's the challenger is the face of that. They're the ones that is portraying the information back and forth, but they also bring in key players. They get the support of the entire organization around the C-suite, for example, not just one person trying to make one person to make a decision, but getting that person's support from their own organization. There's some interesting Uh, dynamics that these challengers bring to the table and businesses can actually develop these people and strategies for their own uh, sake. So that, that book has a lot of great information. Now, moving on to the book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It by Chris Voss. He was a hostage negotiator. And this book has been very helpful for me in my personal life. So I've changed jobs a number of times over the years and always end up negotiating salary. And I turn to my man, Chris Voss, for that. But uh, there are a variety of little nuggets that you could take in your entrepreneurship, your personal life. And I'm just going to share with you a few of these right here. This is in chapter six, Bend Their Reality. 
In the middle of a paragraph I'm kicking off, he says, from using some people's fear of deadlines and the mysterious power of odd numbers to our misunderstood relationship to fairness, there are always ways to bend our counterpart's reality so it conforms to what we ultimately want to give them, not to what they initially think they deserve. So a fair deal is completely up to perspective, right? So if you can change their perspective on what's actually a fair deal or a good deal for them, you can walk away with both parties happy getting exactly what you wanted. Most often, people in negotiation are driven by fear or by the desire to avoid pain. Too few are driven by their actual goals. Deadlines are often arbitrary, almost always flexible, and hardly ever trigger the consequences we think or are told they will. Deadlines are the boogeyman of negotiation, almost exclusively self-inflicted figments of our imagination, unnecessarily unsettling us for no good reason. The mantra we coach our clients on is, no deal is better than a bad deal. If that mantra can truly be internalized and clients begin to believe they've got all the time they need to conduct the negotiation right, their patience becomes a formidable weapon. He says the F word, why it's so powerful when to use it and how. The most powerful word in negotiations is fair. <laughs> Not the F word you may have been thinking. As a human, as human beings, we're mightily swayed by how much we feel we have been respected. People comply with agreements if they feel they've been treated fairly and lash out if they don't. He goes on to describe fairness and when to use the word fair or if you've been hit by unfairness, how to respond. So skipping ahead, think back to the last time someone made this implicit accusation of unfairness to you, and I'll bet that you'll have to admit that it immediately triggered feelings of defensiveness and discomfort. These feelings are often subconscious and often lead to an irrational concession. How to discover the emotional drivers behind what the other party values. How to become a rainmaker. If you can get the other party to reveal their problems, pain, and unmet objectives, if you can get at what people are really buying, then you can sell them a vision of their problem that leaves your proposal as the perfect solution. Look at this from the most basic level. What does a good babysitter sell, really? It's not childcare exactly, but a relaxed evening. A furnace salesperson? Cozy rooms for family time. A locksmith? A feeling of security. Know the emotional drivers and you can frame the benefits of any deal in language that will resonate. Skipping ahead again. In tough negotiation, it's not enough to show the other party that you can deliver the thing they want. To get real leverage, you have to persuade them that they have something concrete to lose if the deal falls through. He's got several subsections here. Number one, anchor their emotions. Number two, let the other guy go first most of the time. So if you're negotiating salary, usually it's better for them to uh, put a number out. But he does kind of go back and forth on this on some of his YouTube videos. Like you don't always have to let them go first. So if they're requesting a, a range or you want to get a specific range, go ahead and put that range out there, but anchor them very high. So if you want 120, say, you know, I want 120 or 125 to 170, something really like that's a big range. I want 120 to 165. Well, now they're going like, okay, this is the range. The median is, you know, 145 or whatever. Uh, let's, let's hit them a little lower than that. And they hit you at, you know, 130 and you go, well, I got everything I wanted. 
So number three is actually establish a range. Number four, pivot to non-monetary terms. Number five, when you do talk numbers, use odd ones. I'll read you a section in there. He says, the biggest thing to remember is that numbers that end in zero inevitably feel like temporary placeholders, guesstimates that you can easily be negotiated off of. But anything you throw out that sounds less rounded, say 37,263, feels like a figure that you came to as a result of thoughtful calculation. Such numbers feel serious and permanent to your counterpart, so use them to fortify your offers. How can you say no without saying no? One of those methods is to basically ask the person, how am I supposed to do that? So if they give you a demand, you go, how am I supposed to do that? You basically put it back in their court, like they're in charge of figuring out your problem. And when they realize that that's a difficult problem to solve, they sort of ease up. So a couple of examples, right? How am I supposed to do that? Or how can I come up with that kind of money? I would love to meet you there, but I just don't have that kind of money. I don't see how I can do that, etc. So hopefully that gives you a little flavor of, of some of the tricks that a 14 or 15 year hostage negotiator from the FBI could teach you about, you know, getting a bit more out of your salary out of your next business deal, uh, how to, how to talk to people, even just talking to your kids and anchoring them in some expectation that entices them to clean their room as they should. So nothing crazy or no, no big business, but helping them get things done effectively with positive emotions around it. So, uh, another very interesting and effective book in, in sales and personal Uh, strategy there for negotiation. So the three books are, again, Influencer, The Power to Change Anything. This is written by five different people, uh, Carrie Patterson, Joseph Granny, David Maxfield, Ron McMillan, and Al Switzler. The second book was The Challenger Cell, Taking Control of the Customer Conversation. This is written by Matthew Dixon and Brent Adams. And the last book was Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It, by Chris Voss. So three excellent sales and negotiation books. I know this episode was not nearly as in-depth and informative, but three solid books on a concept that is applicable today where uh, the market seems to be tightening and uh, your skill set is going to be more and more valuable as it pertains to making deals out there in in a more difficult economy, which I only predict will be more and more difficult over the next couple of years. So uh, so next week, we'll be back to an in-depth book review. I look forward to having you guys there, and we will catch you on the next one. Hey, thanks for listening to the entire episode. As a token of gratitude, I want to give you a discount on my book, Ingrained. Head over to bronsonwilkes.com store and download Ingrained for less than a dollar with the coupon code GOALS, G-O-A-L-S.